0: Our Heavenly Fathers, we open Your Word. We pray that the Holy Spirit will be here and be our teacher. May our eyes be all for Christ. May we understand what He has done for us. Help us to grasp the joy of Your love for us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Chapter 7, the first part, is one of the most misunderstood parts. In fact, I've heard it even with Adventists. say it's sweet kindness. Uh, people misunderstand this allegory uh, that Paul is using. And here's, uh, so let me just go ahead and start. Let me read it, and then I'm going to try to uh, help uh, clarify. Actually, it's a very clear picture. Or do you not, verse 1, chapter 7? Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over man as long as he lives? For a woman who has a husband... I'm not going to get into the divorce issue and remarriage thing. I'm just going to focus on the illustration. For a woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies... She's free from that law so that she's no adulteress, though she's married another man. Therefore, because of this, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God." For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to that which we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the letter and not the uh, the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Now if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you're bound to run into a friend, somebody, somewhere that's quoted that text to you, that says that uh, we have been delivered from the law, delivered from the law. So, what does he mean by this story? I'm going to put this story, and um, th- this is a parable. What did I say it was? Okay. What did I say this was? A parable. a parable. All right. And what do you do with parables? It's designed to teach one basic point. All right. There was a, there was a a lady, and she married yet. Somebody trying to get up with each other. There was a lady, she married this man, and all went well for just a little while. But after a while, she found out that he was just a terrible guy. Uh, He made her life miserable. He verbally abused her. He physically abused her. And she didn't know what kind of work he did, but she was just uh, really miserable. And every once in a while, he'd go on a long business trip. And when he'd go on long business trips, she'd say, "Oh, oh, oh, that's nice." And so he'd do this every once in a while. Go on these long one time. He's gone on one of these long business trips. She went down to the local park, and she ran into another man there that was so nice. He was so nice, so kind. Everything was appropriate. He was appropriate. Never made any kind of uh, inappropriate anything. But he was just so nice. And on the way home. Something said to her, wouldn't it be nice if you were married to him? And all of a sudden, another voice said, but the law says. Okay, so she put it out of her mind. Her husband come back and, oh, life was miserable. Then he'd leave and she'd go down to the park and she'd run into this guy and they'd talk, have a nice visit together and... On the way home, she'd say, wouldn't it be wonderful if I could... And then another voice would come in and say, but the law says. (laughs) Well, this went on a while. Nothing, everybody was nice. Uh, You know, they were, nobody had any wrong kinds of anything. But every time she'd go home after leaving that, she'd hear that voice. But the law says. So one time her husband left left on a long business trip, and he was gone for quite a long time. And uh, she went out to pick up the morning newspaper. I could say she turned on the internet and looked at the morning news, but anyway, I like the newspaper for this one better. So she was out, she picked up, what did I say this was? Okay, I just want to make sure that you understood that. Uh, she went and picked up the morning newspaper. My wife doesn't like this illustration, but you'll understand why in a minute. But... <laughs> she went and picked up the morning newspaper and she opens it up and on the headlines it says, Notorious criminal executed by the state. Whoa, what's this all about? And she began to read it and she read her husband's own name. And she almost smiled. What did I say this was? Yeah. So she almost smiled, and then, because she felt a little guilty about that. And uh, so anyway, in the course of time, she, met, she went down to the park again. And this man was so nice, and they had become such nice friends. And on the way home, she was saying to herself, wouldn't it be nice if I could be married to him? And suddenly there's no voice. There's no voice that says, but the law says. In the course of time, they became good friends and they, they got married. And then he told her something. What did I say this was? <laughs> he says, there's something I didn't tell you. I actually am the king and I've been in disguise, so I was somehow looking for a wife. And but I'm the king, and I have to tell you something else. I put your husband to death.
1: Um,
0: That's the part my wife doesn't like. And I know what you're thinking, and don't think that. Uh, Would I tell you this was? Yeah. yeah you're okay. And he said your husband was horrible, and he'd murdered a lot of people, done a lot of horrible things and we had been on his case for a long time didn't know anything about you but finally we caught him and and we put he's a notorious criminal so they got married now before ladies forgive me i'm stereotyping just a little bit for the story's sake okay is that okay you forgive me Bef- before when she was married to this terrible guy that was ruining her life was there still meals to cook was there still yes your husband should help you with this but remember this is a parable <laughs> I know you may appreciate me making sure that was clear uh, This so are, are there still meals to cook and the house to clean and all that kind of, is there still chores to be done that's my point yeah There's still the obligations between the husband and wife that normally go in life. And now she's married to this new pastor, and she is so happy. She's so very happy. And when she does the dishes this time, she's happy doing the dishes. Why is she happy doing the dishes? There's a big difference, isn't there, between who you're married to But let me ask you a question, and this is what I ask my friends. The duties didn't change, did they? So here's the punchline. The law never changes. It doesn't matter whether she's married to this scoundrel or whether she's married to this prince. The law never changes. And here's Paul's punchline. Now you'll get it, I think, my parable. On Calvary's cross, Jesus took the old man that we're all married to at birth and He killed him on Calvary's cross. So we could be married to him. Follow me? And, and he killed that old man because that old man needs to die. I mean, he needs to be really eradicated. So now, we don't serve in the, uh, in the letter of the law. Before, when she was married to this old scoundrel, how did she serve? When she washed the dishes, was it fine? Terrible he's just going to scream and rage, and when she washes the dishes over here, she gets kisses. So now she serves not according to the letter, but according to the spirit, because the law never changes. and that's Paul's point. When you know Christ, he comes and puts to death the old man. So that we might be married to him, he uses the marriage as an illustration. But you got the uh, the whole uh, picture. Okay, here's a, a uh, question. I just I don't have a question. I just wanted to say I lived that life with my wife, and then I was released, and I know I've been married for ten years. So One year Okay, I, I I appreciate the testimony. I just want to be careful. I don't get into a lot of that. But you understand where I'm coming from. But my point is that I I wanted to help us understand what Paul says because what Paul is saying there is that you're not delivered from the law in the sense that you don't have to obey it anymore. You're delivered from whom you're married to because the law kills the old man. Christ killed him on Calvary's cross so that we could be free to be married to another. Now let's listen to that text again. Don't forget that was a parable, please. (laughs) Look at verse 6 now. But now we've been delivered from the law. How How then are we delivered from the law? What delivers us from the law? How does he deliver us from the law? He delivers us from the law by killing the old man. Now we're free. Am I right? So you don't hear the voice anymore, but the law says. No, we're free now to marry Christ because He killed the old carnal nature and we're free to belong to Him. So that's what it means to be delivered from the law. We're delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Do you understand that now? Any questions on that? So um, that's what Jesus did for us on Calvary Cross. A wonderful thing for what he did for all of us on Calvary's Cross. I open that door because that keeps a little breeze, but we do get a little extra noise with it. Okay, in the back.
1: Just real quickly, I have a note from a previous sermon that uh, where, where a lot of, you used a different word to found, but I just have a little footnote, that before it was a hostage situation. Oh, okay. I,
0: I thought that was sort of a Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this, this old carnal nature holds us hostage in a sense because He doesn't want to let us go. And the only way we can get loose from Him is for Him to die. So that's why the battle is between Christ and the old nature. Okay, let's, um, let's go on down here looking at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? So you can't have it both ways. You can't be delivered from the law and I don't have to obey it anymore. That's a conclusion that a lot of people make. I'm delivered from the law and I don't have to obey it anymore. And then turn around and say, is the law sin? And say, certainly not. No, the law never changes. It governs everything. It governs both marriages. It governs the marriage of the old man. And it governs the marriage of the new Christ that we are married to, so to speak. Certainly not. On contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness. By the way, where's that a quote from? Ten Commandments. So we're talking about context here is the Ten Commandments. I would not have known covetousness except the law said you shall not covet. But sin, that's an old man, taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Why is sin dead apart from the law? There's, there's, uh, there's some chairs over here. You can just come on in. You're, yeah, there's some chairs over there too if you want. To. Why? You're fine. We're glad to have you. Just come on in. Why, why is sin dead apart from the law? There's nothing to point because I wouldn't have known what sin was unless the law told me what it was. So sin makes, I mean, the law of God makes sin jump up. And that's where repentance comes in. Remember my, how you die? You're buried, you die, you're buried in front of God's law. That law has an enormous power to drive us into the arms of grace. And um, all right, verse um, verse nine. I was I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Is that clear for everybody? So I want to go on here to the next part, verse ten, and the commandment which was to bring what. Life, I found to bring, oh. So why did God give the Ten Commandments to start with? This will be a little flashback to what I've already talked about earlier. Why did God give the Ten Commandments to start with?
1: So we what was. Death, death, hold. it has been
0: without the law. That's His character, his, his glory and the harmony in heaven. The law brings life. In other words, without the law, life doesn't exist. So the law makes order. Remember me talking about that in another meeting? I talked about that. The law brings order. Without order, you die. Organization is life. And so here's that text, a very powerful text. The law brings life. That's what he says, looking at, again at verse, uh, at verse 9. I was a lie, I mean 10, and the commandment, which was to bring life. Why does it now bring death? Because the law is correcting the disorder. So why do you go su- get surgery for some kind, like I uh, say cancer? Why do we go get surgery for cancer? That's right. It's bringing disorder. So you got to get rid of the disorder so the surgeon goes in and does what he does. That's what the law does. The law is here to say, look, if you bring disorder into the universe, you bring sin into the universe, the law is going to do something about it. And the reason the law is going to do something about it is because the law is trying to preserve life. That's how crucial this is. Most people don't get it. Most people live in this Uh, okay, God made ten rules, so I guess I have to keep them. No, God made ten rules so you can live, so the universe can live. And everything about Calvary's cross is to bring mankind back into harmony with that so that life can exist in the universe. No law, no life. That's why there's justice. That's why we usually read those words, the wrath of God. That's the reason you read the words about justice. It's not that because God is just arbitrarily angry. You know, I don't like that Jay Gallimore. I just don't like, you know, the shape of his nose or whatever it is. I, God's not that way. That's not the issue here. You're, you're, you're not just making God mad because it's you, The fact is that if God lets you and me exist in a sinful condition, we will become the seeds that destroy the universe. Life cannot exist with sinners. And what we're going through right now is a process in the universe that would eliminate sin from the universe. It eliminates sin from the universe in two ways. Either we become converted and changed and transformed Or justice, in order to preserve the universe, is going to eliminate us. Those are the two choices, and that's not because God's mean. It's just because God cannot preserve life. He has to make a tough choice here. It's not that he won't. Wa- if he if he hated you, he would have never sent his son to Calvary's cross. If he wanted us to die, he would have never emptied heaven in order to transform us and to forgive us our sins. He would have never done it. But he did it because he does love us. But he will not allow life to come to cessation in the universe. He's going to preserve the universe. The devil is not going to be allowed to take over the universe. The devil is, I'm sorry... I know he's really bright. He knows 2 plus 2 equals 4 really well. But he's really, really dumb. Because he cannot sustain the universe. And his principles destroy the universe. That's why I said the great controversy between Christ and Satan is between the principles of the devil, which is selfish principles, Versus the unselfish principles of Jesus. And if we're going to be converted by the grace of God, then we need to start living an unselfish life now. And that's what Jesus does when He comes into my heart. He starts helping me by the grace of God to live an unselfish life. And when you live an unselfish life, your life's going to come into harmony with God's Ten Commandments. Now, making sense? Uh, we have a wonderful God. He set the universe up. It runs by law. And He set it up so He could maintain order, divine order in it. And He he loves us so much He wants to bring us back into harmony, bring our hearts, our affections all back into harmony with the universe. When that happens, the law of God is a pleasure. You're grateful for the law of God. Okay, still with me? All right, I didn't see any hands waving around out there, so let's... um, Let's go on. That, that's such a key verse, uh, really, in all of Scripture. And there's probably maybe some other parallels to go with it. But let me go to verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. I don't see how anybody can read the book of Romans hardly and come away and say, God's law doesn't really matter. I can disobey the law of God at will and still be saved, that's not what he's saying at all. Now you cannot be saved by keeping the law, but you cannot be saved by ignoring the law either.: um, There are no fence centers. Yeah, there are no fence centers. You're, you're going to be either inside the fence or outside the fence, and if you're outside the fence, I'm sorry. All right, then Paul goes through... I'm going I'm to paraphrase uh, a little bit here and then I want to jump over to chapter 11 um, because I'd like to get into the Jewish thing and I hope I've got enough time to do it, at least barely. Um, Paul talks about this struggle he goes through. These, those things I would do, I don't do. and Those things I would do, I don't... You know, you know the, the thing. And then he... verse 24... He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now go back up to verse 22. He talks about this struggle in his life. He says, For I delight in the law of God. What law do I have here? That's the Ten Commandments. I delight in that. In the law of God, according to the inward man. But, verse 23... I see another law. What law is that? It's the law of sin. You can look at it. It's the carnal law, if you want to put it that way. I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. That's the carnal nature. So he says, I know the law of God and it's good. I delight in it. I mean, I'm basically a good man. I, I, I don't want to. But there's another law that's at war with the law of God. And these two are fighting. By the way, the law of God's commandments cannot win this war. Can't win it. They fight. Cannot win it. But hallelujah, there's another law. And notice the answer to the old wretched man that I am who will deliver me notice verse 8 chapter 8 I'm sorry verse 1 chapter 8 verse 1 there is therefore now now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus you want to stand up and say hallelujah I may have that clashing but if I'm in Christ there's no condemnation that's why that I love that uh, part uh, we already covered in chapter five. And this grace in which we stand—it's not an on and off again relationship. It's not once saved always saved. But hallelujah! It's not. I don't wake up this moment and think I'm going to be lost, and the next moment hope I'm going. No, this grace in which I stand. And uh, so if I'm in Christ, there's no condemnation. Isn't that good news? No condemnation. Now, now listen. Look at verse. Verse, uh, he goes on, who walk according to the flesh, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, if I got this constant war, how am I going to walk according to the Spirit and not walk according to the flesh? How's that going to happen? Paul just talked about that war. Well, it's the next verse. And it gives us the third law. Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life In Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So there's another law introduced in my life. And that law is the living Christ by the Holy Spirit. So the Ten Commandments and the carnal nature, they fight and I cry out, wretched man that I am, Lord, I need some help. And he says, I'm coming. And he rides in with a third law, the law of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of life. And he teams up with God's Ten Commandments and together they put that other guy and kill him. That's what the conversion process is all about. It's getting this selfish nature dead. Aren't you glad we have such a mighty Savior? So now I can walk according to the Spirit. Why can I walk according to the Spirit? I've got powerful allies with me. I got powerful help with me. Now, chapter eight is one of the most wonderful chapters. I, I love this chapter. I, you can never plumb the depths of it. Ever have? Uh, and I say, to sweet guys, ever have uh, a Jehovah Witness or your Baptist friends or some other friends come up to you and tell you that? Well, I'm I'm under the Spirit now. I don't need the law. you ever have anybody tell you that? Yeah, I always have a text for them, and this is my text, and I want to give it to you. It's, um, uh, it's verse 7, but before I read verse 7, look at verse 4. All of this happens that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit." The whole plan of salvation is so that the righteous requirements of the law can be fulfilled in me. Why does God want them fulfilled in me? Because He wants me in harmony with the universe. He wants me to live forever. He doesn't want me to die. That's why He wants the righteous requirements of the law lived in me. And if you love the Lord Jesus, and He is your King of kings and Lord of lords, by the way, He's a wonderful King. He's a wonderful husband. He's a wonderful leader. Whatever uh, uh, symbol you want to use, you, cannot, you can't find someone better than Jesus. can't find someone better. So you're united with Him. Now notice, here's my, here's my text. Uh, you can read verse 6 for yourself. Verse 7, For the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So I let them go down the road. They share all everything they want to share with me. And then I said, well, what? Tell me about this text. And they read it. They don't see any problem with it at first until I ask this question. If the carnal mind... Remember, they're saying, I don't need the law because I'm spiritual now. I've got the... I'm living by the Spirit. And I said, so if the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God. What is the spiritual mind subject to? The, in my best southern English, there ain't nowhere to go. Because the carnal mind and the spiritual mind are opposites. So if the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God, that means that the spiritual mind is subject to the law of God. Okay. I've heard the
1: red stuff that the man in Romans 7 is unconverted. Somebody will say it is the converted man. Somebody will say it's
0: unconverted. I've heard it both ways. Is he converted or unconverted? I don't know. I think I had the same struggles when I was unconverted as when I was, am converted because the old man's still not dead, dead. It
1: seems to me he would be happy with the law of God if he was unconverted.
0: Yeah, you, you can kind of take it. The truth is, we have to have that third law in our life. I have to, I have, somewhere along that line, I've got to be converted and have that third law in my life. And if I do have the third law in my life, then that third law is going to give me the victory to be able to walk in the Spirit. And to have the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in my life, so the real issue here is, how do I get that third law, the law of the spirit of the life, as it is in Jesus? Well, I get that when I'm converted and I invite Christ into my life. Yes. I I'm, a little, uh, I'm
1: not understanding maybe how your uh, how this uh, third law I haven't been around all the time. This is not a new. Law, I mean, you its something you're the Law, correct? Right? Okay, uh, the law of Jesus, Spirit of God—it's nothing new. Just because Christ uh, died on the cross, it's been there all along.
0: This—I uh, yeah, think that's a—that's that, fair. And, I mean, Paul is trying to help us to understand what's going on here. So he's the one that calls the law that I, the law of um, of the commandment which I delight in. And then he calls the law of sin. And then, oh, wretched man that I am, these two guys are fighting. And then what's the solution? And the solution is what I call the third law, which is, and he calls it a law, the law of the spirit of life as it is in Christ Jesus. So the only way I get that third law is when the living Christ comes into my heart and life. That's the only way I get that third law. Now that happened before the cross because they anticipated the cross. So when people surrender their life to Christ, he also worked in them with that same law. Um, so you get that third law when the living Christ is invited. To You're welcome. It's a good question. All right. I don't want to go too far, too fast that I uh, 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 lose you here. All right. Let me go down. I'm, I'm trying to skip along. You forgive me. and You'll have to follow in your lessons there as you uh, go home. Um I want to look down at verse 15, and we get into the the Spirit of God here. Verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again, to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So Paul is using all kinds of illustrations. He uses the marriage illustration. Now he's using the child-father illustration. And he says, Now, once you've been adopted, well, how do I get adopted? If I receive Christ and put my faith in him, he becomes my elder brother. I'm adopted into the family of God. And and when I do that, now I may call my heavenly father Abba. By the way, Ellen White says the, the title that Jesus, that the Father in heaven, the Lord in heaven, by the way, he's not just our Father, he's also the Creator, if you please he's the judge, he's, he's many, many things, the counselor. But the title that she says endears the Heavenly Father to us is the title Father. And it was the title that Jesus used, <coughs> our Father. And this is not a father that is arbitrary. Many people have had fathers that weren't so good fathers. But this Heavenly Father, this Father is a wonderful Father who really loves us who really cares about us. And so once you're adopted into the family by means of Christ, then you may call the God of heaven, the creator of the universe, you may call him your father. Isn't that beautiful? You're part of the family. That's why I love that song. We are part of the family of God. We sing that song. And so our Heavenly Father makes that clear. Yes. Yes. Well, yes. one thing
1: that I don't understand is that Christ, uh, uh, in a sense, gained a new title, and I think the Luke uh, mentions that and I'm like the Son of God when he came to the earth. But what I don't understand is there are two uh, references in the Old Testament when um, they saw a fourth person in the fire, and that was this life, the Son of God. And then in, in, in uh, uh, Proverbs, when it references the beginning of a creation, both through and who other than God and his son. And I just, how can that be? How can they, because it's not referencing to the future when Christ comes, but to the present and the past. How can he be the son of God? I, I don't understand that.
0: Um, and there's a great mystery here. Christ became the Son of God, yes, when He came to this world. But there's a sense that He was a Son of God from all eternity. Now that trips some people up because it's, oh, then there was a time when Christ didn't know. You, you have to look at that... That word begotten means unique and one of a kind. Uh, and so there's a special relationship between the father and the son that they have represented to us as a father's son so that we could understand something of what it meant for the God the father to give up the Lord Jesus to the human race. different roles but there's uniquenesses there that we can't understand and but we accept the revelation and the revelation is that the relation between the Father and the Lord Jesus is like the relation between a father and a son uh, let let me explain that from a father they're not they're not lesser gods um, but there's a relationship that helps us to understand, for our purposes, what they called it before, I don't know, but for our purposes, they represent it as a father-son. If you have only one son, I'm talking to fathers now. you have one son, and you start hearing the beating of war drums, what do you start to think? What do you start to think?
1: Exactly right.
0: Do I give my son to that? There's something special between God the Father and God the Son. And there's something special between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That specialness, we don't, can't totally, we define it in the terms they give us, but they're but they are, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. very, very powerful statement.
1: Have uh, you ever turned right to Christ when He was on the cross? He said, Daddy.
0: Abba, Abba Father. Mm-hmm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that holds such huge meaning. I don't have time to go there, but to plunge that depth. It's when I see that at Calvary's cross, I stand back and I say, I worship, I worship. Because we we cannot understand the depths of what that meant. That's what took the life of, the, of Christ. I mean, the other stuff was horrible. The beatings were horrible and all that kind of thing. But when he cries that cry of dereliction, And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was in that moment that Christ drunk the penalty of the second death. Faith did not open a beam through the portals of the tomb. That was God's... Wrath, if you please. Let me go there for a moment because I don't want to leave that out. I'm glad you brought it up. It helps us to understand this whole essence of the gospel where God sacrificed Himself in Christ to His own justice and set us free. I I want to flash back to Abraham and Isaac for a second. Do you think there was suffering going on between going up that Mount Moriah with just Abraham and Isaac? you think there was suffering? you think there was grief and pain? What, What do you think happened? What kind of grief and pain when Abraham says, Isaac, God told me to sacrifice you. You're the sacrifice. Do you think there was suffering there? Isaac's probably 18 years old. He's got his whole life in front of him. He could have easily pushed his father away and ran. He didn't have to allow himself to be bound to that that altar. That shows the dedication of this young man. And then what about his father? What kind of suffering? I often ask this question. Tell me. Who suffered the most? I don't think we can say. I think they both suffered terrible. And when you go to Calvary's cross, who suffered the most? I don't think we can say. They both suffered terrible. And the suffering was for you and me.
1: Genesis there, it talks about Abraham splitting the wood for the sacrifice instead of someone else. Yeah.
0: It's pretty deep. I, I think that's why all through eternity we will look at the sacrifice that the Father made with the Son, and we will say, what love is this, and you will never be able to plumb the depths of it you will never be able to understand the why. But the two of them understand it. But we, we now, poor fallen human beings, we can now call the God of the universe, Father. And He loves us like He loves His Son. Why would we turn that down? Why would we turn it down? Um, I'm going to leave chapter 8 to you. Can I speak a little bit about the Jewish connection? Changing gears here for just a little bit. I'm going to have to paraphrase real quick here, but then I'll get down to the uh, essence of it. But Romans 9, 10, and 11... Romans 9 starts as Paul changes whole gears here and he talks about how he is burdened for his own Jewish people. And this is quite a statement. He says, I would, like my, I would rather myself be accursed from Christ if it could be for the saving of my own people. That's quite a statement. And then he goes down through Pharaoh and he talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. I think I've talked about that before. We're not talking about predestination here. We're talking about God choosing a really stubborn guy and putting him on the throne, and then letting it work out the way it did. I'm not going to get into that very much, but then as you get deeper into this, um, and, and then he, if you look at verse, um, look at verse 30 of chapter nine. Maybe I should go back just... Well, I'll go back to that in a little bit. Look at verse 30, chapter 9. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? And how do they attain it? By faith. Even the righteousness of faith. They put their trust in God. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Who is the stumbling stone? It's Christ. And then then he goes down, if you look at uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Verse 3, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How is Christ the end of the law? Christ is the law. He's the living law. He's the total summation of the law. He is both the ceremonial law and He's the moral law. He's all of it. So when you have Christ, you don't need the other because you've got the living Christ. And he, by the way, He's not in contradiction with His law. Never in contradiction with His law. Christ is the end. He he's, you put your faith in Him. Now I'm skipping down here just a little bit more. And I want to go to chapter 11. Still with me? Verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1. And I say then, has God cast away His people? Talking about the Jewish people. What is Paul's answer? Certainly not. Now, question answered. Many of our evangelical friends will say, see, yes, that's right, because that's what Israel is all about, the nation of Israel. Now I want to make something very clear. I'm not being negative about the nation of Israel. I'm only talking about the theological issues here. But I want to say this clearly and kindly. The nation of Israel is not the fulfillment of those promises. The only way the promises can be fulfilled to the Jewish people is if they pursue righteousness by faith in Christ. That's the only way. Just they're no different than the Gentiles. You the only way you can be saved is by faith in Christ. And that's the only so going back to the land of Israel, forming a Jewish nation is not the fulfillment of those prophecies. Verse two has God God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God, and then then God answers in verse 4 I've reserved to myself seven thousand men who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Leave your that's a remnant, by the way. Seven thousand is a remnant. Leave your finger there and go back to chapter nine and look at verse twenty-seven. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. I say hallelujah to that. And then he says, We would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah if the Lord had not left us a seed. Over in chapter 11 He says, he reminds us that God told Elijah, I still have 7,000 that have not bowed the knee. Does God have a remnant among the Jewish people? The answer to that is yes. He's talking about the Jewish people but it'll become more inclusive before we're done. Looking at verse 5, Even so then, at this present time, that was in Paul's day, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. By the way, who's, who's example A of that? Who's exhibit A of that remnant? Paul. He was a Jew of the Jews. But how did Paul become a remnant? Not be saying, not be staying as a Pharisee, he became a remnant when he took Christ. So then from Christ, all the are the than... Hang on. Yeah. Here's what I'm saying. Let me just say it clearly. That there is a that God's purposes know no failure. The Jewish nation may fail him and he will still have a Jewish remnant in the end of time. Yeah, I know, I know kind of what you're thinking, But if you'll hang on with me, it'll, it'll come clear as I get down to the end of it here. But right now I'm focusing on this remnant of the Jewish people. So God's purposes know neither failure nor delay. God's going to have His way with this whole thing. Old HMS Richard Sr., anybody remember him? Uh, I, I was a long time ago, I was a young pastor, and we had a group of us that got to sit down with him and talk. He was in his well into his 80s, and uh, we just sat in a big circle around him, and he was just sharing with us. And he told us, he says to, you, to us, he said, you young preachers, he said, let me tell you something. He says, you keep your eye on two things as we go through the through to the end of time, two things. You keep your eye on the Pope, and you keep your eye on the Jews. Now let me tell you how accurate he was in a sense because if you flash back to if you flash back to the Dark Ages, one of the reasons for the Crusades was to try to get rid of the Jews, not just the Muslims. What was World War II? what was that all about? There's six million Jews turned into Horrible deaths because of Hitler. And Hitler told the Roman this is no secret, by the way, he told the Roman Catholic Church, he says, What you wouldn't do, I will do. He was a Roman Catholic to the days he died, and he was never excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. And if you want to read a really good book, read the book Hitler's Pope by John Cornwall. John Cornwall was a staunch Roman Catholic who didn't believe the charges that the Vatican was pro-Nazi during World War II and he went and he said I'm going to prove it and he came back and said it was worse than what they said it was. If you don't have that book you should get it. It's called Hitler's Pope by John Cornwall. Hitler's Pope. Um, At any rate, the Jews have been an issue. Why are the Jews an issue? Because God reached over and took them out and carved them out and made them His firstborn. And when He brought them out, He says there's two things. The the blessings and the curses. If you follow me, you get the blessings and all the world will know that I am God. And if you disobey me, you will get the curses and all the world will know that I am God. The world, the, the Jewish people are God's exhibit to the world of who He is and what He is. And just as he refused to allow Pharaoh to kill his firstborn, he refused to let Hitler do it either. And he will refuse to let the Muslims do it either. He's not going to let anybody do it. In fact, he's going to do something that's going to amaze the world. Before Jesus comes, among Jewish people, there's going to be a great turning to the Messiah. And they are going to see that Jesus, and many of them are already doing that, and they're saying, He was ours all alone. They're the firstborn. This Messiah was our Messiah. He is our Messiah. This is the real returning to the Lord. If you don't bother that wasp, he won't hurt you. <laughs>
1: You're just flying. But they the ones who
0: spread the gospel that given. We
1: talk about the ones that we reject, but it was the Jews that followed Christ
0: that, that spread. The the whole early Christian church was Jewish. In fact, Paul says to the Gentile Christians, I think the Thessalonians, he says to them, he he says, you should imitate the churches in Judea. Well, the churches in Judea were Jewish. In fact, I'm going to tell you something else. The work will not be finished without the input of the Jewish people. By the way, when the Jewish people recognize Jesus as their Messiah, what do you think happens with Sabbath? What do you think happens with pork? Do they have any problem with that? Now I have not let that escape my notice. He's the brains behind whatever good happens out of there. Or, in some people's eyes, the worst. That's right. That's right. And the daughter is a converted Jew because her husband is Jewish. Just wait. That's, That's going to play out. I can't tell you how. I don't know how, but listen to where I'm going. I want you to listen to what the Bible is saying. I I think we got enough time to maybe finish this up, at least to whet your appetite enough. Look at chapter 11, verse 8. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. But look at verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 11. I say then... Have they stumbled that they should fall? Now, it's talking about falling permanently. Have they stumbled that they should fall permanently? Certainly not. God forbid. Why? Because God's not going to allow His promises to... You know why? Hitler could not win. Hitler was going to be destroyed. Nazism was going to be destroyed because God was not going to allow him. He would have wiped out every Jewish person on the face of the earth. If he had done that, God's prophecies would have failed. And God's not going to let his prophecies fail. He's already said these people are a special people for will or woe. They will demonstrate to the world who I am. Uh, If you look at human history, these people should have been merged into... and disappeared from human history. But they were not. They did not. They've still kept their uniqueness to this day. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Oh, whoa. So even though they, in the rejection of Jesus... That opened the door for people like you and me to find a Savior. I don't know about your ancestors, but my ancestors are probably over there in England running around the woods with the droods and you doing human sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. Am I thankful for the gospel? Amen. I'm grateful for the gospel. The salvation is coming. Now, now listen to this. Look at verse 12. Now if their fall, Jewish fall, is richest for the world and their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. You get it. In other words, if the, if the Jewish people are rejected, or reject the Savior, and they fall, but sometime later they come back, if, this be, if even their fault, it's like I said, they're, they're a symbol. Uh, God is going to use them for will or woe. So they fall. God uses that to do what? He, he unleashes His grace and His goodness to the Gentile world. If, that, if, if their fall could result in something good and wonderful for all the rest of us, what would be their putting back in the Christ? What would that be like? I'll tell you. It'll be the coming of Jesus. Now, Let me give you the rest of it. Look at, look at verse um, 13. No, I'm going to to skip 13 and 14. You can figure that out. I'm going to put 15 with 12. Here we go. For if their Jewish people, being cast out is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Tell me, when are the dead resurrected? When do the dead get life? I think what Paul is saying is that when you see this great, mighty revival among the Jewish people and they discover Christ, not all Jews, but many of them, this is going to be a mighty movement at the end of time. When they discover Christ, the result of that is going to be the coming of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. Now, it it gives you about the wild olive tree. I won't won't take time to go through that because of the time factors. And I I want to finish up here in just a moment. But Paul, in the next few verses, he pictures this olive tree, cultivated olive tree. And out of that, branches have been broken off because of God's justice. And wild olive trees, not cultivated ones, their branches have been broken off and grafted into, contrary to nature, into the cultivated olive tree. Normally, you, you do it the other way around, am I right? Yep. So, But these wild, olive tree, these wild olive branches are the Gentiles. How are they grafted into this cultivated olive tree? By faith. In other words, if they have faith in Christ, they're, they're, they're um, grafted in. How are these cultivated olive branches broken off? Because of unbelief, because of lack of faith. So they're broken off. Now Paul says, if you can take a wild olive branch by faith and graft it into that tree, isn't it going to be even easier to take the cultivated olive tree branch and graft it back into the tree? And then he says, All Israel will be saved. Now that word, all Israel, means everybody that's in the tree. And who's in the tree? Jews and Gentiles have been grafted into the tree. And we become Israel. Because the the olive tree has the roots of the prophets and the patriarchs and the apostles. It's it's the tree that God has been growing all along in His garden. It's the cultivated olive tree. And when God is done, He's going to have grafted into that. He'll have some that were never broken off because they always had belief. Jewish people. He's going to have Jewish people that were broken off because of their unbelief, and then at maybe in the end of time they're going to be grafted back in. He's going to have Gentiles who were wild, olive tree, and they're going to be grafted into that, and then all Israel will be saved. Isn't that good news? I see your hand. Let me let me finish. Let me let me run down this because I, I want to finish here in just a moment. Now let me come back to the world we're living in in the moment. This whole issue with. The nation of Israel. Who props up the nation of Israel? The United States of America. Uh, much of the world thinks that's weird. They don't get it. They don't, they, they, they don't get it why the United States of America is so passionate about Israel. You've got uh, 1.2 billion Muslims and you've got six to eight million Jews in that nation, and, and the United States just dares the rest of the world to touch them. And they say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not in your self-interest. It would be better in your self-interest to discard the Jewish people and go with all the Muslim world because there's so many more of us. Besides, we own so much oil. You've probably heard that argument before. So most of the world, does, they look at this and they say, that doesn't make any sense, and they don't get it. They don't get the fact that the United States of America was raised up as a great Bible-believing people, a biblical people. And that one reason that God raised us up was to destroy Nazism and wipe it out of the earth. And they don't understand that Bible-believing people believe that God still has a purpose for the Jewish people. Now, I'm not saying the political solution is the solution. It's not. I've already told you that it's not. So we're protecting this, you know, and you got all the evangelicals, they're saying... I, I remember way back... Um, uh, remember the guy that wrote the book, The Late Great Planet Earth? Yeah. And uh, they were saying Jimmy Carter came along, you know, and so forth. And, and they, they had the Jewish wars, and the Jewish people, they captured all this territory. And then Jimmy Carter came along. And they, sa- they all said at that point, See, see, this is, this is the full pen of Bible prophecy. The Jews are taking over the law. And then Jimmy Carter comes by and gives it back. And they kind of went quiet at that point. Because that's not the fulfillment. What happens if the nation of Israel causes the United States a lot of pain and suffering? How quickly will the American public figure out that it's not in their best interest to protect the Jewish nation any longer? How long would that take? About overnight. This nation runs on popular whatever. Let's say that runs simultaneously with a lot of Jewish people coming to face to face with the Messiah and they're embracing Jesus as their Messiah. So you got this great movement and now this great nation of the United States who's now being dominated by the papacy and the papacy for 1,200 years years has hated the Jewish people. I heard, um, I was out out west in, in uh, the Seattle area in Auburn, Washington. I was listening, I was out working my camper one morning and I was listening to King Radio talk show and one of the guys came up there and they were, it was Martin Luther's birthday or whatever and they were just downing Martin Luther saying he hated Jews. He said some pretty awful things about Jews. But I thought to myself, you guys guys didn't do your homework. Where do you think think Martin Luther learned to hate Jews? He learned to hate it in the monastery. He's just reflecting the culture of his time. He learned it from the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, so this nation is being dominated by that. You put all that together and you could have a scenario where overnight, now listen to me carefully, you've got a huge movement of Jewish people becoming Christians. You've got the Gentile Adventist church, in essence, beginning to merge with that movement. And at the same time, you've got a nation now that's turned to hate Jews. And history will repeat itself. Why did the the Roman Empire persecute the Christians? Because they considered Christians to be Jews. They hated them. They hated the Jews. The Romans felt like they had a right to hate the Jews because of what they went through in 80, 70 and all of that kind of thing. You can see what they did to Jewish people and how they banned them. In fact, you see even picked up in the Scriptures, uh, who, who was the couple there uh, uh, that um, Paul liked so much they were tent makers with him? Aquila and Priscilla. Aquila and Priscilla. They were were booted out of Rome and that's why they ended up joining Paul because Rome was angry at the Jewish people. So you can have a situation in this nation in the end of time where the whole world, already the rest of the world hates Jews. The only only one that stands up for them basically in the United Nations is the United States of America. You You can do the new stuff yourself. Do the history research. The whole world now turns against Jewish people. And they come up with that thing. And now, many Jews are Christians, Adventists are Christians, and they look at Adventists and they say, What? You keep the Sabbath? You don't eat pork? You're Jew. (laughs) And the mark of the beast. You wonder how anti-Sabbatarian... Anger can grow. The mark of the beast can very well be connected to anti-Semitism in the end of time. But the promise is that when that Jewish revival is interjected into the final movement of earth's history, the gospel will be finished, Jesus will come, the dead will be resurrected, And all Israel will be saved. God's prophecies know no defeat, and they know no delay. I don't have. I've got about one more minute. You got a question before I can? Okay.
1: You said that all of the the uh, wild olive tree will be cultivated. Jews and Gentiles both back into the tree, and that will be the spiritual Israel. So is there truly now, as we say, a spiritual Israel?
0: Yes, there is. I believe that... I'll I'll be very clear. I believe that the Adventist church fulfills the conditions of keeping the commandments of God, the testimony of Jesus, and the faith of Jesus. It's the only church that does it, has those three. It is God's remnant people. It doesn't make us any better, but we're to be His instruments in the end of time. And what God is going to do is a lot of Jewish people are going to be converted and they're going to interject into that and that's going to pour energy into it. The world will turn angry, but at the same time there's going to be a reaping around the world. Listen, there's nobody going to be able to declare the unchangeableness of the law of God like a Jewish Christian. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so in the end, all Israel we'll be saved. Lord, I just want to be part of Israel, the true Israel, the part that's grafted into that tree. That's the part I want to be. And aren't you glad that God doesn't care about ethnicity? And the only reason he picked up Israel was to show his power and to be able to reach the rest of us. Even in their failure, he used it to reach us. And then he, in the success, what is that going to be? The coming of the Lord, the resurrection of the dead. Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father in heaven, you're so good to us. Thank you for the wonderful book of Romans. And as uh, all these dear friends of mine, they study this, may they become masters of it. May they be able to explain it to other people. And may it do a work in my heart and each one of their hearts because, Father dear, we want to be part of that real Israel, that real Israel that has faith in Jesus and what He's done for us.